Welcome back, everybody, to the Long Island Hip Book Workshop. My name is Taylor, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Taylor. Yes. Can we please have a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer? God, God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and a wisdom to know the difference. The purpose of this workshop is for a members to share their experience on five topics, surrender, forgive, amend, change, and serve. It is open to anyone interested, but please respect the anonymity of anyone else attending and do not disclose anyone else's attendance without their permission or convey content linked to the identity of the speaker. Uh, some housekeeping items real quick uh, regarding the amenities. Once again, two restrooms over there, beverage room back here. Uh, we have, I believe at this point, limited water bottles, but there's uh, water dispensers for filtered water throughout. Uh, we have coffee, uh, tea, which can be, uh, you heat up hot water in the microwave. Uh, we have soda. We have some uh, light snacks. Um, and your definition of light and uh, friends. Um, uh, this session will be ending at about 4.15. Um, in terms of if you wanted to have questions asked to the speakers, please direct your questions to Tim. Uh, the gentleman uh, in the blue shirt with the British accent who was just speaking before, who's disappeared. Um, to kick us off, here is a reading uh, for this session on the topic of change. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? We still cling to something we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. When ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have now completed step seven, page 76 from Alcoholics Anonymous. So we now have five speakers. Uh, we have James, Anthony, Bill, Paul, and Karina. And I now invite you to welcome James, who has come to share on the topic of change. Thank you. I'm James. Hi, James. Um, yeah, um, I've asked um, Taylor there just to read out the short passage in the big book on step six and seven. Um, so there's very little about it in the big book, and as you know, there's uh, much more written about it in the 12 and 12, and I'm going to be making some reference to the 12 and 12, because it's, um, it's uh, a piece of writing that I've found extremely helpful in relation to these steps. Um, of course, we, we start changing as soon as we come into A, as soon as I put down a drink all those years ago, um, I started to change. Um, one thing, I stopped drinking, and that was a pretty massive change. Um, but that's not really the change that um, I'm, I want to talk about. I want to talk about um, the change that is spoken of in 6 and 7, um, the readiness to have God remove these defects of character which I've uncovered in the course of my step 4 and 5, um, and um, the request that God remove those in step 7. Um, and what I particularly want to address is, what's my part in it? Hmm. Because um, step six says that I must be entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. And um, step seven says that I must humbly ask him uh, to do so. Um, so beyond the readiness and the humbly asking, is there anything else that I have to do? Is there any part that I have to play in this? And that's really what I want to address and just think about with you just for the next few minutes. Um, and I want to 
tell you a little story. I don't know if Tim's here, because Tim's heard this little story before. Um, but nobody else would have done. Um, but it has the virtue of being true. And um, it's, um, it's a story about um, a, a holiday that I took a few years ago with my partner. And I booked the holiday, and we had booked to go to Italy. And my partner speaks extremely good Italian. Um, you would practically think he wasn't Italian. And I was anxious about the fact that um, what was going to happen on this holiday, as has happened many times before, is that um, there would be conversations going on around me in Italian um, not involving me, involving him and involving other people, and not involving me. And I would sit there with a stupid sort of grin on my face, sort of pretending I sort of vaguely understood what was going on, uh, and not having any idea of what was going on. And I thought, I'm not having this. There's something I can do about this. I can actually at least try and learn a bit of Italian. So that was my plan. And um, it was about eight weeks before um, we were due to set off. And I went to the local bookstore, and I went to the language section. And there are a number of courses on Italian. And I found this course by a chap called Michel Thomas. And it was a little box set of CDs, eight CDs, an hour each. And the strap line on the, on the uh, cover of the CD set was this. Italian complete course. I like the complete. No books, no writing, just confidence in hours. I thought, this is me. This is me. This has got my name on it. This is exactly what I want. And so um, I bought Michel Thomas, and, um, and I set off down the road with a spring in my step going home, because at that moment, at that moment, I was entirely ready entirely ready to have Michel Thomas remove from me my ignorance of Italian. Now, fast forward eight weeks. How's my Italian? It's non-existent. It's non-existent. Um, because I didn't do what was required of me. You see, in order for Michel Thomas, I'm sure Michel Thomas is a very, very good teacher of languages. I'm sure he is. But for it to work, for him to be able to operate in my life, I have to expose myself to him. I have to take him out of the box and put him into the CD player and listen to what he has to say. And if I don't do that, if I don't do that, I'm not going to learn Italian. The ignorance is not going to be lifted from me. And that was my problem, you see. My entire readiness lasted all of half an hour. Uh, uh, and um, I'm afraid that that just doesn't cut it. Okay. Now, for me, step six sort of operates in rather a similar way. You know, entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. It's, you know, when I finish my step five, and when a lot of people finish their step five, they have a spring in their step. You often hear people talking about feeling as though a weight has been lifted off their shoulders. And it is a great feeling, and no doubt many of us have felt that feeling. But unless, unless I'm willing to be changed, step six and step seven, unless I'm willing to be changed, then that feeling ain't going to last. It didn't last with Michel Thomas. It's not going to last with step six and seven. Okay. I have got to maintain, I've got to maintain the readiness to have God remove these defects of character. It's not a, it's not a once and for all. It's a forever. Okay. It's a forever. I have got to be forever ready to have God remove these defects of character. And um, I've got to expose myself to the influence of this higher power. And I've got to do, just as, I, just as I should have done what Michel Thomas told me, if Michel Thomas said, repeat after me, uno, due, tre, I should have done it. I never did it. 
Okay, but, it, but exposing myself to the influence of my higher power, if I do what my higher power tells me to do, and my higher power can manifest himself in many ways, as I'm going to illustrate in a minute. Um, if I do what my higher power tells me to do, then, lo and behold, these defects of character are at least diminished, if not taken away completely. They are at least diminished. It's a, it's a process of cooperation. You know, God cannot work in my life unless I, open, unless I allow him to, unless I turn towards him and allow him to. It doesn't work otherwise. He's given me free will. You know, he said to me, you can turn your back on me if you want, and if you do that, well, there it is. But if you want to turn to me, I'll help you. Okay, that's the way it works. That's the deal. Okay, and um, the term cooperation is used by Bill in this, uh, in, in step six in the 12 and 12, page 66. He says this, um, if we ask, God will certainly forgive our derelictions, but in no case does he render us white as snow and keep us that way without our cooperation. Okay. That's something we are supposed to be willing to work towards ourselves. He asks only that we try as best we know how to make progress in the building of character. And so he describes step six as describing an attitude to take towards what will become a lifetime job. So this readiness is an attitude to take towards a lifetime job. And there's no point in being ready unless you're willing to do things. You know, I think Paul was sharing yesterday. There's no point in making a decision in step three unless you're prepared to go through with some action. Okay? There's no point in being ready in step six unless you're prepared to do the stuff uh, that is required to have this change effective, to allow God to work in your life, your higher power to work in your life. Now, I want to give you an illustration, if I may, of just how that worked for me. Um, I had a relapse after seven years, as some of you uh, who were here yesterday will know. And um, when I came back into the fellowship, I threw myself into it, and I had a very pragmatic sponsor, and I did a thorough step four and five with him. And it threw out many, many things, of course. But I just want to pick on two of them, of the hundreds. But there are just two which sort of, because they illustrate the point. Um, one of them was a resentment towards my roommate at work. I shared a room with a much older man who was sort of my boss. And I had a real difficulty with him because he was very um, set in his ways, he, didn't, he wasn't interested in trying new things and I sort of fell out with him and basically didn't communicate with him, okay? But I still had to go to work every day and sit in the same room as him, all right? Um, so there was a problem. And my sponsor said to me, once, um, once we'd looked at this resentment and looked at what was the cause of the resentment, when we got to step six and seven, my sponsor said to me, what are you, what are you going to do about this? Um, and I said, well, I, I'll, I will pray to have, I mean, at the root of it was fear in me. I will pray to have this fear removed from me. He said, well, that's, that's a start, certainly. But he said, may I suggest that when you go into your room tomorrow, you actually talk to him. You talk to him and you say, Good morning, Richard. How's your weekend been? Okay. And uh, offer to make him a cup of coffee. In other words, reopen <coughs> communications with him. Um, now, there was God speaking to me through my sponsor, you know, saying, look, come on, the stuff you can do here to, to have this resentment, this, this particular fear removed from you. There was another example. One of the things that... Um, that bugged me and has, has, continues to bug me to an extent is the fact that I frequently start projects and do not finish them. And the reason for that is because I am a perfectionist. And if I hit a fault in this project, which I find too difficult, I abandon it. Okay? And that happens in many things. If I'm reading, a, I might decide I want to read a history book. And I get to a certain point and I think, well, I don't get this at all, and so I just give it up. 
But one particular area of my life, for years, ever since I was four years old, I played the piano relatively indifferently. I'd make no great claims for it, but I played the piano, okay? And I play classical music, and I enjoy playing classical music. Uh, and as Tim will, will tell you, because he, he knows me well, I have thousands, hundreds, hundreds of pieces of sheet music, of pieces of classical music that I have bought, and I can play the first five bars of most of it, and that's about it, okay? Because I start and then I hit a difficult passage and I abandon it and I think, well, I can't do that, okay? And it was, it was starting really to get at me. And my sponsor during the session, he said, let's just have a look at that little problem and let's just do a little exercise. He said, do it for me to humor me. He said, what about if you, if you, you, you name the piece, I don't care what it is, he said, but uh, what about you choose a piece and you learn it from beginning to end and you play it to me? in a couple of weeks' time. How about that? Should we try that? And so I sort of conceded that I might possibly be able to do that. And I took a relatively straightforward piece, which was within my ability, and I sat down and I learned the bloody thing from beginning to end, from beginning to end. And two weeks later, he came along, <coughs> and I played it to him. And lo and behold, he actually got some pleasure out of it, because I didn't play it too badly. I was quite pleased with it. Okay. But there, again, it's an example of a higher power talking to me through somebody else, showing me a way, showing me a way to behave, okay? Don't just give up on things just because they're a little bit difficult. Crack on with them. And you know, in my work now, at the moment I'm working as an academic lawyer, and, and I have to read a lot, of, a lot of articles written by terribly clever people, far more eminent and clever than me. And, and some of them are very difficult. And, and I'll get sort of four or five pages in and I think I have not the slightest clue what this person is talking about. Now, what do I do? Do I give up or do I crack on? Because it may be that if I don't understand that point, possibly there's something further on in this learned article that I will understand and that I will get to grips with and that I'll be able to use. In other words, abandon the perfectionism. Don't think just because you can't have, understand every single word. It means that the exercise is completely worthless. Okay. And so that little exercise with my sponsor all those years ago completely changed the way I work. Completely changed it. And that, for me, was step six, in a way, in action. It was me sort of keeping my readiness open and opening myself to influences, to good influences, whether they be, come to me through a sponsor or whether they come to me in prayer or meditation, but opening myself to the influence of goodness, and I put it in that broadest, broadest term, of God, which may express himself in any good way. Okay? Um, and for me, that does feel like step six in action, okay? And step seven is a way of opening the channel, isn't it? It's the way, it's the way of, of, of opening that channel to God and making myself open to these influences which will bring about the change in my behavior. So that's how I understand my, my role in step six and seven. And I wanted to, to, to share that with you because I'm very grateful to the man who sponsored me all those years ago, John F., who, in, in Bristol, who really helped me with those steps. And I don't know if that has uh, 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 touched any of you or made any sense, but I hope it, I hope it has, and that's really all I propose to say. Is it me? Yeah. yeah. Yes, hi, my name is... Anthony, I'm an alcoholic. Anthony. Uh, thanks uh, so much, James, for um, setting the stage so um, so well uh, around change. And I just have a couple of very short things to say. So the, the first thing is that when I first read this topic, I was sort of flummoxed. Because undoubtedly I've changed. You know, I'm not a... I'm not a crazy alcoholic who lives with my retired parents in their retirement village and, and um, you know, an inveterate liar and things like that uh, anymore. 
But how that change has taken place, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain I can... I don't know what to say about change. Change is something that occurs almost while I'm not um, looking at it. But I think in general the thing I, I do want to say is actually I think the truth is there's two different types of change and James alluded to them at the, in the end of his talk. One is direct change and one is indirect. The direct is a sort of change whereby um, when I'm doing a fifth step uh, with uh, one of my sponsees, we might have a list of defects of character. And then what I'll often have them do is write a list of the exact opposites of those things. And then we might maybe choose one or two of those opposites. So if they're, a, uh, if they're rude to waiters, uh, the opposite might be be kind to waiters. So we might work on that for a few weeks. We'll talk and say, how are you going with waiters? <laughs> You're being kind. Um, or if they're a liar, uh, we might work on being honest. Uh, so I, I do think you can get a certain amount of headway into change by making that sort of cognitive behavioural adjustment to your behaviour. So another good example of that is when I drink, I go crazy and take my clothes off, so I'm going to not drink. Uh, and that's, that's an example of a kind of direct change that I can affect and thereby not take my clothes off. Um, but I think most importantly, and the reason why this topic flummoxed me a little bit, is that I think most of the change that is, is really enduring and very important in, in our sobriety is indirect change. And that's the change that comes about through me just forgetting about change altogether. And I'll tell a little story to illustrate this and then stop. When I was a few weeks sober, my sponsor took me to a meeting where there was a sign on the, on the table that said, sharers are carers, swearers are not. And what you need to know about me is that when I first got sober, every second word began with the letter F. And I was incensed by this sign. <laughs> uh, and I called my sponsor over at the end of the meeting and I said, listen, look, I have to tell you that I'm going to take that sign and shove it down the secretary's throat. Uh, I, was, I was serious. She was this one anyway. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and he said, that's terrific. Can you just stack those chairs over there uh, at the end of the meeting? I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm going to take the sign and follow her out into the car park and stick this down her throat. He was like, yeah, great. Can, can, you just, yeah, can you stack those chairs, please, for a moment? And eventually I got so bored with him. Uh, that to spite him, to show him I was, you know, a good AA, uh, I went and stacked the chairs. By the time I'd finished stacking the chairs, I'd forgotten all about the sign and the secretary and the stuffing it down the throat. And what that proves to me is that I think real change occurs far more beautifully and gracefully than the sort of change where we just practice being nice to waiters. And it generally, the reason why I can't say much about change, even though I've now spoken for six minutes, is that change is really none of my business. What is my business are the actions of alcoholics moments. If I want to change, then the best thing I can do is to forget about change. Focus on the actions of alcoholics moments, and we'll see what happens. I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Hi everybody, Bill, alcoholic. Hi Bill. So a lot of new people in here and some people with some time. So two short perspectives. When I came in here, I needed to be changed. And I thought in the beginning that I was the one supposed to do the changing. And to, to a degree, I was the one who was responsible for my recovery. I was the one who was responsible to take the actions that were indicated by others, not just this crazy little head, to change. So as I surrendered to that process, I took some designated actions, like in the big book, it says, 
people around me noticed the change in me before I did. I used to recognize that. People would tell me that, show me that passage in the book. And once I started to get it, then my ego grabbed onto this again. So now I want to go back into my home unit where they're finally letting me in, and I'm going to shine up my halo and stick it in their face <laughs> to show them how I've changed. I had an uncle who came up to me at one of the family gatherings and said, you've been in treatment so many times, here you are trying to show off like you've changed. And he poked his finger at me and says, you are never going to change. Just wait. Some months later, at a family reunion, I walk up to him, because I've been mulling on this for a long time. See? I'm an alcoholic who hasn't been changed. I'm hanging around sober, but I haven't been changed. And I walk up to him, and I'm going to shine my halo, and I'm sticking in everybody's face again. And I walk up to him, and I'm poking him in the chest. Listen, MFR, you dip, 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 like, And I got him up against the wall. And he's just grinning at me, saying, see, you haven't changed. And all of a sudden, I became hyper aware of what a butthead I was. And so I backed down. So now I go back into this process of change, and I resubmit, which is a change. I think the biggest first set of changes that I can do um, comes across like in a set-aside prayer. The simplest form of a set-aside prayer that I've ever learned was, God, please set aside within me what I think I know so I can be open to a new experience. I needed a new experience because every time I'm trying to shine up my old ideals and make them look pretty, they were the old ideals and the shine would wear off and off I'd go again. So that's one piece. Later on in recovery, that set-aside prayer kind of mentality takes on some different meaning. I used to think that I got the words in this book, and I got the power behind me, and I'm going to go change everybody, right? This AA isn't doing it right, and I'm going to thump them with this book and with these words and do this and do that. That didn't work well for me. I needed to change. My attitude needed to be adjusted. So what did I do? First, I became willing to change. I saw a problem, and I became willing to be part of a solution to a problem I didn't know the solution to, and I asked for help. That's a big change, asking. As time has gone on, love and tolerance of others has become my code. I will leave the, the rough riding, big book thumping now to other people. And what I will do is to ask God what direction I should go in each instance. That is a huge change for a guy like me. Two hours? Okay. <laughs> that, is, that is the biggest change that I can see now in later sobriety, is I gotta be willing to give up my way. See, when I'm early, I got my way about this and my way about that and about survival. What I don't see is some of those character defects actually kind of morph, walk along a spiritual path, put on some spiritual cloak, and whisper junk. And I think, this came from God. It's intuition. I need to act and react, and I, I gotta go, you know, rather than pause. I also used to think that agitated or doubtful what we talked about in the 10th step. I could understand what agitated was. I'm mad, right? Or I'm irritated. Sometimes agitated can come in the form of a spiritual experience. I can become positively agitated. And that is cool. That's when I know I'm more of a part of change than trying to be an implement of change. So when I'm a part of being changed and I'm a part of helping to change someone else's life, not for fame or fortune or any hooks. Oh man, I am overpaid. I am blessed beyond measure. And I want to thank all of you here because I feel blessed beyond measure with this form and this format. I feel blessed beyond measure to be invited to be made possibly an element of change.
When God's power flows through me and I'm very clear it's not of me, whew, look out. Thanks. <clears throat> yeah.
uh, how am I in right standing with God? Because when I'm not, I don't feel that it hurts me. And the reason that it does is because I love him so much because he loves me so much first. And I realize how much I've been forgiven. And when I, with that knowledge, it allows me to press in and submit my spirit to that which is not of God. And so I, I'm allowing him to change me in ways that sometimes I don't want to change. They still have value, or at least I think they have value. Um, and so I think one of the illustrations that I'd like to share um, how God changed me is sometimes we don't even know, or I didn't know. I had that thing with my sister, and this is going back some years ago, and um, I, uh, we were both in our corners. We just weren't talking. It was whatever. We weren't bad with each other, but we tried to avoid one another. Um, we went to family functions and um, just pretty much talked to other people in the room, but it was just nothing, nothing, only we knew what was going on, except God knew too. And, um, and I hadn't been um, asking God at that time to see what was wrong in with me. I was okay with what was going on. I felt like I don't want to go back in and work anymore on this particular issue. It's just too painful. So I was kind of in a resting spot, if you will. And um, she was nannying my nephew, and um, I brought Paul's nephew. I actually called my brother. I bypassed her, called my brother, and asked if I could take the two nephews in their home to have a date. And when my sister answered the door, she was taken aback and pretty much was almost like, I don't, not now. I said, I called the owners. Like, that was my attitude, like, I'm coming in, I don't need you, you know, that type of stuff. And she blew up, she couldn't control her emotions. And the short end of that is that she felt bad, she stayed in the house, she was terrible to um, my sister-in-law, um, old sister-in-law, the nephew's uh, mom. And that particular day, my mom had come to my house to have a visit. And um, basically, I told my mother what went on. And um, my mother had a talk with my sister or whatever, and I got my way, if you will. But what God did with me and the way he was able to change me or my heart was I had, I got convicted that evening when I did my nightly review. There was X's all over the place. I wasn't kind of loving, I was selfish, I was in fear. Um, and I just, it was full on the feeling of rejection um, with my sister, and this is how um, you know, all of my defects of character just kind of spidered out, and that was what was the outcome. But what came to me was, I had no right to involve my mother in my and my sister's battle. And, um, and that, that was causing pain to a mother. Every mother wants their child, children to get along. And that really catapulted me into um, wanting to change. The willingness, having that willingness, and I began to work on, with God, cooperating. In other words, God, in the morning, I see that I'm behaving, I'm misbehaving this way. I'm causing these um, things in, in my family that um, pain and, and hurt and, and separation and exclusion, and God doesn't want that. And so, you know, with God, Slowly, over time, every morning, I would say to him, please help me not to be judgmental. Help me to be kind and loving. And over time, I was able to do that. And over time, I was able to not include my mother in mine and my sisters. Now, there, you know, there's not any of that. And, um, and I try and I make a better effort to not withhold love, to include my sister to ask God to continually keep my heart in a place of love. And um, that's really, um, that's God's job. I mean, that's what we're talking about. In six, I acknowledge the weakness, and in seven, I understand that God has the power. I mean, in the textbook, it talks about, um, you know, we can't will these things or wish these things any away more than we could alcohol, you know? And so um, I think as uh, I continue, God continues to keep me, um, I realized more and more my need for God. And, um, and I humbly and happily submit my spirit to that. And because of that, there are more chunks of joy 
and I feel as though um, my character is, is developing more into the characteristics of my God, which is really the aim. Thank you. Hi, family. My name is Paul DeLeon. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hi, Paul. And I don't want to let my friend Taylor down, so I'm going to come in sideways. Um, I'm not going to share about six and seven. You know, in step two, we agnostics talks about the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. It says if you have, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. And then if we slide to the back of the book and we read about a spiritual experience, it says that it is a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. And then on the same page it says, he finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, which is a change. So I was told in the audience that I only had to change one thing if I wanted to remain sober. And that was everything. And experience has shown me that that was the truth because the person I was will drink today. That person needed to die. Alcoholics Anonymous is about death, the death of self. I needed self to die so that a new me could be reborn. Step three is that we were reborn. And for that to happen, it had to be created as a death of self. Because that person that I was will drink. And that is done through this process. Talks about it, I think it's on page 25, about the things which this process requires for its successful consummation. And my experience has been that if I follow the directions in this book, there is no way in the world that my personality will not change. Um, a little bit on six and seven, they're in a chapter called Into Action, and uh, thank all of you for your experiences. And, and my experience was when I got to six and seven, First off, somebody touched on it. I tried making amends like three weeks after I got to AA and that didn't go really good. You know. I had no idea what an amends was. I thought an amends was an apology. And if you really look up the word amends, my second thought was it meant I had to fix things. And that's not an amends, that is to mend. To amend is to change. So I had no right going to try to make an amends until I had changed. That's why step nine is after step seven, six and seven. Because if I went to you and said, I'm sorry I stole that money, can I give you back the money? But next week, the same person goes and steals money from someone else. I did not make an amends. I made an apology, because I have still not changed. So I followed the directions all the way up to six and seven, and they're in a chapter called Into Action. And the action that I need to take to show God that I am entirely ready to have the defect removed. Yeah, I love what the book says. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now let God, are we now ready to let God remove us? All the things which we have admitted are objectionable. So the first thing is I have to admit that these things are objectionable or I will not change them. If I think lying and cheating and stealing are not objectionable, that they're doing for me what I need them to do. I am not going to be willing to change them. And I need to do the change. God will give me that power. I don't cause the change, but I need to practice the opposite like was spoken before me. God will do for me what I cannot do for myself. I can practice honesty to the best of my ability. I'm dishonest, I am selfish, I can practice being a selfless human being to the best of my ability. And my experience has been that when I start to practice the opposite of my defects, God will remove the defect if I ask him to. I say the seven step prayer, and at the end of the prayer, it says, give me strength as I want for him to do your bidding, amen. And the next sentence in the book says, we have then completed step seven. 
So there's no work. I, I love people who say I'm working on some seven. Uh, I don't know how. What are you doing? <laughs> are you playing God? I don't know. God's going to remove the defect. Step six, I had a lot of work to do. Step seven is a prayer. And I ask him to remove everything, good and bad, because what feels good is not always good. And what feels bad is not always bad. God has used my defects many times to move me to a place where he needed me to be. And it's way too long of a story, but one of those defects brought me to a meeting which introduced me to a woman who I got to sponsor, whose sister noticed that she changed, and I ended up sponsoring the sister for a while, and then we got engaged and we got married. <laughs> that was my defect that brought me to that meeting, because it was a meeting with a picture with a lot of women at the meeting, so it was the only reason I went. So my defect, God used to bring me to that place. Uh -huh. So I gotta remember, God's gonna do the changing, but it's my job to take the actions necessary. Thanks for having me. Thank you to all our speakers. We will now address uh, the floor for a Q&A session. Uh, we don't have any questions submitted. Anybody have any questions on the topic? Actually, yeah. uh, Jim Alcoholic. Hi, Jim. Um, maybe I zoned a little bit, but Bill, could you, Jim, I go to a couple of, you said you wanted to be a part of change and not to be a change. Can you, can you say that again? Like, what bring that spirit about being entirely willing? I know we were talking about that when you said that. Well, I think as long as I recognize that I'm not the changer, I, I can and will be on a good day an agent for God. I can be an agent for change. But I am not the cause or the cure. I, and on a good day, I can be an agent. A breadcrumb in the it's also, if I would just kind of add on to that too, it's the spirit of the, um, the prayer of St. Francis, right? The 11th step prayer of the 12 and 12, make me a channel um, of, of your peace. Make me a channel.
So after I came to the end of myself and I got leveled in six years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I was homeless. Um, I was asked to leave my dwelling place. Um, I got into the motorcycle accident. I lost my leg. My entire life was in an alphabetical um, folder file. I had my birth certificate, I had my baptism, my divorce paper, and my social security card. And these were the things that told me who I was. And um, I didn't even have a prosthetic. I was getting around on crutches. My family disowned me. And that's where my thinking got me when I'm held captive by my thoughts. And that catapulted me for actually, um, I think that God leveled the mountain and made it into a road that I you know, was able to be led down towards him. You know, I often talk about, do you want cheaper or do you want deeper? And, um, you know, I want deeper. And this is why it's very important for me to practice step 11. You know, we start out in three, and that's the beginning portions of the submission and the, um, the allowing God to change us. Then we recommit in seven, recommit in 11, and we start to bring that out into the world and keep doing that, and it becomes a manifold for our life. And by doing those things, I'm able to, you know, when there is a negative thought, take it captive and put a prayer in between it. So the way that I would shorten what I just said would be, I have a negative thought. In between that negative thought and the action is God. Because if I don't have that, I'm going on the whole train ride and I'm going to end up homeless. And that's really where I go. And so I've learned to discipline my thoughts. I can, you know, I'm in charge of what's going on here. And I choose to align my thought process with God's. And that's what we call aligning our will with God's will. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, family, Paul Hold on. You know, my personal experience. When I, used to, when I first started practicing this way of life, I was told that this is all about practices and disciplines. And the only way, in the book, what it said is us alcoholics are an undisciplined lot. So we let God discipline us in the way we just outlined. And experiencing in early recovery, I used to get up in the morning, run to the bathroom, cup of coffee, get dressed. And on the way to work, I would pray in the car. And I've come to understand that that's not going to work for a guy like me. The directions state, upon awakening, consider your plans for the day. But before you begin, ask God to direct your thinking. So our, since I practice my wife and I together, when we wake up, but before I was with her, when I woke up, the first thing I would do every day, first thank God for waking me, because the alarm didn't wake me, because... Many people didn't wake up this morning when their alarm clock went off. God allowed me to wake up. And the next thing I do is ask him to direct my thinking because between the walk to the bedroom, to the bathroom, I probably want to kill six people because I know what's going on today because I already have my plans for the day. And, and what happened, what I've learned is that when I ask God first to direct my thinking, it changes my entire outlook of the day and then the rest of the day belongs to God. Uh, and whatever plans I've made, if they happen, they happen. But if they don't, I'm not in the results business. I am here to do his bidding. And with that, it, it, my thought process is still there, but it's more or less waiting for him to show me which way to go. Thank you. What's up, James? Yes, um, the fact is that um, Still, after, after however many years of uh, recovery, unbidden thoughts come into my head, unbidden th fears come into my head and resentments and, um, and into the heads of my sponsees. And, um, <laughs> and um, when that happens, it doesn't particularly profit me to wonder why they have. They just have, it, you just accept it, it's just a fact, they're just there. It's like when the obsession to drink comes upon you. It's, 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 the, the solution is not to work out why the obsession to drink has come upon you. The solution is to do something. And um, for me, when, when some, and it's normally fear in my case, um, and I, you know, sometimes I can be 
overwhelmed by self-regarding fear. Uh, and when that happens, I have the tools because the tools are provided to me by the big book, and that is to do something for somebody else. And Anthony sort of answered the question in the way I would answer it, in the anecdote he told about shoving the notice down the woman's throat. Um, because his sponsor's advice was very sound advice, do something for somebody else. Stop thinking about that and do something for somebody else. Um, and if I, if I do that, then by the time I finish doing something for somebody else, very often the thought is gone. It'll come back at some point, I expect. But, um, but that's fine because um, I've sort of got a solution to it. Um, so I think the important thing is not to worry too much when, when you're in it. And, and for me, I, I'm, I sort of picked up on what Paul just said then. If, if I've got an overwhelming fear upon me, meditating or some sort of spiritual solitary practice is utterly useless for me. <laughs> it, I just, cause I, simply because I can't do it. I can't do it, you know. You know I try and, if I've got this sort of overwhelming fear about something that I'm, uh, something that's coming up in my life, then I cannot meditate. I just can't do it. But, but there are things I can do, which is pick up the phone to somebody else, go and do something for somebody else. I can do that because that's a sort of mechanical thing. And, um, and as soon as I start talking to, to somebody else, then I stop thinking about myself, at least for a short time. Um, and that's the relief that I get, and that's the tool that's, that's been given me. Um, really, so I think that's the advice that I would give to a sponsee who said that. I think just very quickly uh, to uh, a brief story to illustrate that point, which I think is really in, in important. Uh, an extreme example of, of fear and, and resentment and that obsessional thinking that goes around the fear and resentment is, is a panic attack. So I think that's the, the natural end to that type of spinning out. And I used to take a lot of horrific panic attacks very early in sobriety, uh, and I would, you know, where the walls would move and the ceiling would move, really horrific. And really, if you slowed the panic attack down, it would just be fear, resentment, fear, resentment, fear, resentment, fear, but it would just be allowed to, to spin out of control. Uh, and I used to call my sponsor and say to him, I'm having a panic attack, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> uh, and he used to say to me, I was living with my parents in their retirement home at that time, and he used to say to me, um, I want you to go and make your mother a cup of tea. And I used to say to him, no, 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 no. My mother is not having the panic attack I am. So, what I'm, and, and he, he said, I want you to go and make your mother a cup of tea. And I, I would often sack him and then hang up. Uh, and then to show him I was a bigger person than that, I would go and make my mother a cup of tea. And, and what I discovered is, about halfway through the process of making the cup of tea, the panic attack, uh, the, the panicked thinking, fear, resentment, fear, resentment, would subside. And the reason for that is, as long as I'm thinking about how she takes her tea, whether she takes it with milk or without milk, with sugar or without sugar, weak or strong, my attention is off myself for long enough for the grace of God to sneak in the back door and restore me to sanity. So I think the answer to that question is an action, any action that doesn't involve me uh, is a good thing. Thanks. I'm Bill So as, as I take guys through the process, one of the things that I'll do with them is I'll say, show me the chapter in the book that's called Into Thinking. <laughs> most of us are prone to be overthinkers and overanalyzers, and you've got to figure this out. And it's like, step 10, I'm agitated, I'm doubtful, I'm going to learn to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear in me, not in me. Um, and when they crop up, because they're coming, right, they do, what am I going to do about it? It gives us very specific direction. If you don't know what I'm, in fact, I'm not even going to say it. There are four things to do when you're agitated or doubtful or in selfishness or fear. Look them up in the big book. It's that blue book that many of us carry. Get one, look it up. In step 10, there are four things to watch for when I'm in the watch mode, and then there's four pieces of action. And it is action that I need to take to interrupt this process of me living in fear and judging 
and living in fear and judging and reacting. I need to pause because that is agitated and doubtful. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you again to our speakers and to everyone who's made this workshop possible. Um, so let's uh, 